Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to the Law and Blockchain Podcast, hosted by Amy Wan, CEO of SageWise, a safety net for smart contracts and consultant for Security Token Academy. Hi, this is Amy from the Law and Blockchain Podcast. We have a special guest here today, David Silver, who I have had the pleasure of getting to know over the past year. David is most well known as the attorney who has gone and sued a ton of crypto projects and ICOs. And recently he was on the cover of Fortune magazine and the headline was that he's been vindicated. So David, can you give us a little bit of an intro or background about yourself? Sure. My name is David Silver. I'm a lawyer with Silver Miller, a firm I founded a couple of years ago. Uh, I've got a bunch of lawyers who work with me and all we do is securities investment fraud. Um, in the last year or two, or maybe three, I guess, as I've been telling people I've been doing this since 2015, I've started suing some cryptocurrency companies. But ultimately, I'm just an investment fraud lawyer. I see people, investors who lose money, and I sue companies on their behalf. And what's happened recently is the niche where there's a lot of bad actors tends to, is the 2016-2017 hype phase of cryptocurrencies, which led to a bunch of my lawsuits in the space. I just happened to be the right guy at the right time in the right place. So I got a bunch of large lawsuits against companies like Coinbase, Kraken, Nano, BitConnect, Tezos, Gigawatt, Monkey Capital. And nowadays we're suing AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile for the crypto jacking is the case du jour. Wow. Very interesting. So... I want to talk about a number of your lawsuits, but let's start with the lawsuits against um, the crypto companies first. And actually, this is very timely because apparently Gigawatt has now filed for bankruptcy. Um, how, is, how is that going to affect the Gigawatt lawsuit? Well, <laughs> so I have been a passionate advocate that Gigawatt was a fraud from the start. Um, they sold unregistered securities and they knew what they were doing and they proceeded. They are a perfect shining example of everything that's wrong in crypto. There were lawsuits, there were whistleblowers, the regulators are investigating them. Um, the bankruptcy is simply a mechanism, kind of ironic that a company that believes in deregulation and doesn't believe in the law is now seeking the protection of the courts. <laughs> Um, there's irony in that, you know, I thought they don't believe in, you know, regulation and statutes, but apparently when it serves their interests, um, I am going to make it my personal life mission to make <laughs> sure that Gigawatt is held accountable civilly. If possible, I will work with regulators to do it criminally. I'm not suggesting that there's criminal actions out there. I am a civil lawyer, but I believe that this was an easy picking uh, for regulators and lawsuits. And the only thing that happened is this is an exit scam of epic proportions. Wow, very interesting. Um, why don't we just back up a little bit and give people a little bit of context, especially those listeners who don't know so much about the legal industry or the plaintiff's bar. Um, 
what, so you mentioned that before you got into suing a bunch of crypto companies that you're an investment fraud lawyer. So what, what kinds of things were you suing companies over? So typically my, my lawsuits involve an investor who invested money somewhere. And rather than getting a return on their money or a simple loss on their money, like you would expect in any type of investment, uh, they tend to lose all of their money. Um, so what ends up happening is we can take a lot, a large portion of my practice is suing investment advisors, whether that be Wells Fargo, uh, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, uh, but those type of companies that provide investment advice, but then sell you a product that you shouldn't be in. The second type of investment is private investors who invest in private companies. Uh, basically these these type of investors look for what's called private placements and they invest in hedge funds that aren't necessarily regulated. The, anybody who loses money. So in 2015, someone came to me and said, I had some Bitcoin. I gave it to an exchange in Delray Beach, Florida, and they stole my Bitcoin. At the time, it was kind of a lark for me. I'd never really heard of Bitcoin. Um, I said, sure, you're out $20,000, you're a friend of a friend. I sued the exchange, and I got them their money back. And mm -hmm. I got it in fiat at the time. Um, it, didn't buy, it really didn't make a difference to me, but it was trading at 500. I hope that client put it back into Bitcoin to <laughs> still have a, you still have a 10X return. And that's kind of how I got into the space. That first lawsuit was against an exchange called Cripsy. And Cripsy oh, yeah. really opened my eyes up to the world of unregulated crypto exchanges and really start me down, started me down the path that led me to filing all these lawsuits, getting what I like to call niche fame, uh, <laughs> you know, where there's a certain 50 people on Twitter who know who I am. And it's gotten me on TV. I've been on CNBC, Fox, the Wall Street Journal. I've been in print and Reuters and all those things because there was no one doing what I was doing. I was a, I'm a contingency fee lawyer mostly, and I was willing to help people who had lost all their money in the early crypto space and ICO mess, but I did it on my own dime. I put my money where my mouth was because if I believed in the case, I didn't ask for victims to pay more money. Interesting. Can you very briefly explain a contingency fee? So let's say you invest a million dollars into the BitConnect uh, scam. And a lot of people, I mean, I have thousands of people who have contacted me that invested in BitConnect. And you lost your entire investment of a million dollars. I'm not a lawyer who charges you hourly. I don't believe you should be victimized twice. You've already been victimized by losing all of your money. You shouldn't be victimized again by paying a lawyer who may not collect for you. I only get paid if I get you money back. And that's a contingency fee. Great. And so let's talk about the plaintiff's bar real quick. You know, I often say on panels, like, you know, everyone right now and, and for the past year has been obsessed with SEC this, SEC that. And I'm like, well, you know, yes, the SEC is relevant and it counts, but I'm not sure that they're the only ones or the the main ones that you should be afraid of. Um, aside from the SEC, there are 50 state regulators out there. There's the regulators in every country in which you're selling your security or your token, whatever you want to call it. And then there's the plaintiff's bar. So can you give us a brief description of what is the plaintiff's bar? 
So the plaintiff's bar is I only sue people for individual actions. I don't have the power of the state to just go after companies. Trust me, I would if I could. But I actually need an individual who's invested with the company and lost money to turn around and sue. And I can use, and so I do it on an individual basis. Some of the cases have turned into class actions, which just means that it's an aggregated group of individual plaintiffs with similar uh, lawsuits and similar that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, the factual predicate for plaintiffs is the same. You can get into a class action. So for a lot of the BitConnect, I invested in BitConnect. I lost all my money because they were a fraud. Everyone has the same story. That's a class action. Investing in Tezos or Gigawatt was class actions. Um, but basically, that's the plaintiff's bar. We represent individuals. Then you have the SEC, which is duty is to protect Main Street investors. And they've been operating the last year and a half, slowly and methodically. Um, I use a Twitter tweet, uh, Twitter hashtag that says the regulators are coming in 2020. <laughs> They'll eventually come in force. It's going to happen. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. But they are a large, blunt instrument. They're only going to go after some of the top uh, ICOs. I have my personal guess of who they're going to go after, but I <laughs> don't really know, you know exactly what their thinking is. I can tell you I filed several whistleblowers against several of the top ICOs because I believe the SEC should go after all of them, but that's just not practical. But then you have what you're talking about, the state regulators. And I don't know if you know Jason Seibert or have met Jason Seibert but I consider Jason a friend. He's been advocating that it was really going to be the state uh, regulators who were going to go after a lot of these ICOs first. He's been correct. It's really the state regulators, and it's really been Texas, New Jersey, North Carolina, and I think there's one more who I'm blanking on, who have actually gone after, oh, Colorado, I think Colorado too, who have actually gone after a lot of these smaller ICOs. Because the states have the ability to look at anyone they want, and as long as they have one citizen in their state, they can actually shoot off cease and desist letters and investigate. So for the states, it's actually been an easier process than the federal regulators. When a federal regulator indicts you or you get involved in litigation with them that becomes public, a federal regulator and a federal prosecutor tend to have conviction rates of over 95%. And there's a reason. Wow. They don't go after people until basically the case is over. Very interesting. And so are, what similarities or differences are there between you know, the type of lawsuits that are your, your standard investment fraud and um, the ICO crypto ones that you've seen over the past two years? Well, from my perspective, I would say very little. <laughs> um, I would say you have a fraudster who's selling you a product that is simply snake oil, and 90% of the ICOs, probably 98%, if you count all the little ones, um, were fraudulent, unregistered sales of securities or simple exit scams. If I'm allowed to lump those two categories together, I would say that's 99% of the ICOs that happened between late 2015 and mid to late 2017. 
And so what's the, the state of all your litigation against ICOs today? I mean, how long is it going to take to go through um, arbitration or, or the court process and, and get people's money back? Unfortunately for most people, the practical matter is that a lot of the exit scams, it's going to be virtually impossible to actually recover their funds. I'll use BitConnect. You know, BitConnect, there's a billion dollars missing. And a lot of that's overseas. We've sued the promoters in the United States who made a lot of money. We've sued uh, YouTube in that case, who was a business partner with a lot of the promoters. Uh, but the promoters and YouTube are fighting us. You know, they file motions to dismiss and it's going through the court process. So depending who's ultimately held accountable in a lot of these cases, the investors themselves in a lot of these, they're going to be there. I'm going to have a lot of judgments that are uncollectible for that's unfortunate for a lot of people. So that being said, my Coinbase case, my cracking case, Nano, Tezos, those, that, those companies that are going to survive the nuclear uh, crypto mess winter. that's going on, right? <laughs> winter, you know, those cases, win, lose, or draw, someone's going to pay and there'll be money to be paid. Now, Tezos is a good example. You know, when you bought your original Tezzy, I think you bought it for 50 cents. A lot of these unregistered securities actions are about rescission. Mm -hmm. I believe a Tezzy, I haven't looked in the last couple of weeks, but I'm sure that, you know, a Tezzy's last I saw was trading about a dollar. So do you really want rescission on your Tezos investment if your Tezzy is twice the price despite the uh, nuclear winter? It's a pretty bad investment if you still have the Tezzy's. So it makes that litigation that much more complicated. Yeah, and especially now, you know, um, uh, with where the markets are today, I mean... Well, I'm looking right now, like I haven't looked at this in a month. Yeah. So in the last month, Tezzy has gone from $1.25 to $0.58. Cents. So right now, you're only at an $0.08 cent improvement if you still hold your Tezzy's. I mean, I would say that's pretty good because I feel like most everything that ICO'd um, back in 2017, it's... It's, it's gone under its initial price, actually. I agree with you. That's why I'm using Tezos as the only one that I'm aware of that doesn't really fit the norm. Very interesting. And so <laughs> here's another question, right? Um, and, and I say this because I recently looked at, I think it was, um, gosh, it, there was one week, uh, I think last week, where they came out with, Ether Delta and then settlements against two ICOs and they wanted uh, rescission. And I was like, well, this is very interesting because will the rescission be in cryptocurrency or will it be in fiat? Because if it's in fiat, well, you know, the what they paid in crypto so long ago, you know, they would probably be cannibalizing into other uh, foreign investor funds in order to pay that rescission out or, or something like that because you know the prices today are are so dramatically below what what they used to be i mean in in your lawsuits are you asking for you know crypto or fiat or you know have you not specified well we ask for a return of the crypto which is what most people want because you have to remember a lot of these lawsuits that are 
working their way through. And obviously, I'm filing more every year. But started the original lawsuits were 2015 and 16, where crypto was down around to where Bitcoin was around $250. Mm-hmm. So those investors, I, I have a client who's a taxi cab driver in New York who had something like 10,000 Bitcoin stolen from him oh my on God. fraudulent exchanges. And here's a guy who just wants his Bitcoin back. He, he was there. He did it right. He should be a millionaire even today. Um, and instead, he's got nothing and he's still, and he's still working his job. And all he wants to do is get his $40 million back, even at today's prices. Wow. That's incredible. Um, so, yes, he's asking for his money back. Now, we've got a default judgment. In that particular case, I have a wallet locked up with 11,000 Bitcoin in it. But for people in the space, you know, you can't unlock Bitcoin without the private key, having the public knowing where it is and having the private key. It's all about the without the private key, those Bitcoin are worthless. Yeah, man, that's that's really crazy. Well, that let's talk a little bit about a newer set of lawsuits that you've been doing, the ones against um, basically cell phone service providers, AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon. Um, can you t- talk a, l- a little bit about those? So there was a proliferation about starting about a year ago. Some hackers realized that they can go, they can go to a crypto conference and find a bunch of people talking about how rich they were in crypto (laughs) and simply get the, go up to the person and ask for their business card. The person would give them their business card. The hacker would go home, look up the public information about this person, figure out where they lived, who they were, go onto their Facebook accounts, go onto their LinkedIn accounts, and got enough information where they were able to go to the phone companies and it was it's called SIM jacking. They would transfer the SIM card information from the victim's phone to a new phone. And what would happen was the victim, they would just look at their phone. It would look like they had a loss of signal. And it would take a hacker a couple of minutes, but every website that you click on that says forget my password that sends you a four digit text pin to your cell phone through SMS (laughs) and reset your accounts. They would be able to wipe out your accounts in about 20 minutes. Wow. That's incredible. Um, And the amount of crypto that was taken, it's staggering. I mean, these guys knew exactly what they were doing and they they targeted the right group of people and a lot of crypto was stolen. But this one's a little different than most of the cases because here, and I'll use AT&T as an example and I'll talk about myself as an example. Mm-hmm. AT&T started telling people when this happened that you could go to an AT&T uh, store and get an enhanced security on your phone to stop this exact problem. So before I went on my first television appearance, I went to AT&T and I said, I'm going to be on TV for crypto. I know people are, have tried hacking my, I've had my computers ha- attempted to be hacked. I've had my 
uh, email attempted to be hacked. I'm like, I want to make sure that my cell phone is safe and that I can't get SIM jacked. So they told you that, okay, we're going to give you an enhanced security pin. And unless someone gives, you, gives us this enhanced security pin, we will not port your phone under any circumstances. Well, it turns out that a lot of people they told this to, <laughs> when the hacker came to the AT&T store, a $5 hour employee can simply skip over the enhanced security process and port your phone. Oh my God. And a lot of people with this enhanced security who had previously been hacked were hacked a second time. <laughs> Now, sadly, the phone companies haven't rolled over yet and just handed me all the money back. They're making arguments that you're making that when some of these happen, the prices were different. They're willing to pay today's prices. My clients want yesterday's prices. They've also denied liability, saying that the, for a variety of legal reasons. Um, it's an interesting conundrum. It's an interesting legal question about personal information and personal data. Mm -hmm. um, but I have several of those lawsuits, and if you know any of your listeners got their you know crypto stolen, you know there's no one in the country who's doing more of these cases. There's one particularly more famous case of a good friend of mine who's suing, but he's doing but he's suing in court, and he'll eventually end up in arbitration. But he's asking for a lot of money that isn't. You're talking about Michael Turpin. I had dinner at Michael's house uh, about two weeks ago. Michael's a great guy, but he is a marketing genius. <sighs> a lot of Michael's tokens, and this is all public information that were taken, are now worth nothing, or now worth zero. So his pricing is at the peak. Very and he's doing in federal court, but there's an arbitration provision, and it's going to be interesting to see if he gets around the arbitration provision. He's going to spend a lot of money trying to get around the arbitration provision. And God bless him if he's right, but he has a lot of money. Most people who get jacked, uh, they don't have the type of money Michael has. They just want their money back. Michael's okay. fighting, as I say, for the greater good. <laughs> and so, um, so, so all that's very interesting. Um, and even in spite of Michael's lawsuits and you know, a, a bunch of your clients going against the phone companies, honestly, still every single day on Facebook, I am seeing people complain about getting SIM hacked. Well, the only thing I say about that is every time you see one, send them my way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I will do that. <laughs> um, I, you know, I've had people get SIM hacked as recently as last week to the tune of half a million to a million dollars. Oh, that's awful. So I agree with you. It's still happening. They haven't solved the problems. That's crazy. Um, you know, you, David, you've always called yourself a crypto advocate. And yet, you know, I, I know when you go to a bunch of conferences, crypto conferences and stuff like that, you know, there's, there's definitely a contingency of people who avoid you probably because you sued them um why do you call yourself a crypto advocate so when i a lot of what i'm doing isn't i mean i don't want to deny the fact that you know i get paid when i win but a lot of what i'm doing is advocacy for people who can't advocate for themselves um i've 
gotten thrown into the regulatory conversation because I believe a lot of the people who claim to speak for crypto don't. Um, Coin Center, for instance, is a lobbying group. They don't speak for Main Street investors or people who use crypto. They speak for the people who donate money to them, including some of the largest, um, including some of the largest, most dishonest companies in crypto. So, you know, most of what I do is for uh, the better of the the betterment of the main street investors, and some of what I do is, you know, just to help the space grow and develop. Um, when I originally started speaking, I remember like one of the first conferences I was at was in New York. And Bitcoin had hit like 5,000 for the first time. And everything was utility token back then. And everyone was simply, everyone was, I mean, not just booing me off the stage, but calling me the devil. And I remember, and for the first, like six months to a year, that was the, that was really the responses I was getting from the crypto conference community. It didn't really change until after um, Tezos. I feel like Tezos is when things changed. Because people, when they talk about Tezos, talk about Tezos as an ICO. Well, Tezos denies that they were an ICO. They claim you donated your billion dollars to them. And I think Tezos really opened up people's eyes as to how they were doing business. I think the lawsuits against Tezos really opened people's eyes. And I think learning that Tezos was under investigation by the SEC opened people's eyes to where it started being, and I say this all the time, don't steal people's money. And you want to avoid being sued, don't steal people's money. You want to avoid the regulators coming after you, don't steal people's money. But it really took a company which on in all appearances at the moment appears to be not having stolen the money, just a question of an illegal offering or a unregistered offering to really open people's eyes that I was on the side of Main Street investors. Very interesting. And so, you know, aside from the lawsuits that you've already filed over the past couple years, now that the crypto markets are down and at least in the U.S., in the U.S., ICOs are not so much a thing anymore, um, you know, what do you see as like the future of your lawsuits in this space? Like, are there still going to be nearly as many? Sadly, you know... <laughs> greed and corruption are just as old as whoring and drugs. Neither one's going out of business. Whether it's a different niche of people stealing money, I will find that niche next. But for the moment, you know, it's surprising how people in this space are finding new ways to be greedy. What I personally see happening is as much as the security token offerings are being talked about, I do expect mainstream financial advisors to get involved in these type of, in recommending. So I expect this to go back to the normal. I think we, 
I think like any pendulum swing, when you go too far right or too far left, you go back to the middle. I think we're going back to the middle right now. And I think the middle is safer investments where people will find new ways to be greedy and try and steal money. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, David. It's been my absolute pleasure. Anytime. How can people follow and find you? So I am on Twitter. DC Silver uh, is my Twitter handle. I have a, and my website, www.silvermillerlaw.com is the website. And you can see everything on the website. Like all good lawyers, like hiring or looking up all lawyers to do your due diligence and see what they've done in the past and what they're doing today. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. All right. Take care. Bye.